and welcome to yet another episode of the Dicer Screaming Gaming Podcast. Oh. oh, yeah. And with that rousing round of raw, we are here. I am Randy. I am Mike. And together we're here as the cross-eyed Etten of, or cross-eyed Umber Hulk of Gaming <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> oh, no, that was, that was our last session's title. Yeah, but I kind of like it. For the enfant terrible. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. See, I totally used French. Yeah, you did, so thank you. It, it's not all hate. Uh, not all. I mean, and for my next act, I'm going to surrender while eating cheese and drinking wine. Mm. Well, <laughs> with that bit out of the way, uh, yeah, welcome. And uh, tonight <laughs> is Topic Tuesday. we got some topic for your course, and we also have some call-ins. So, uh, Jason, once again, Danes do call in from... RPG Nerds Variety Podcast, and he's, of course, uh, got some stuff to share with us. So, first off, uh, last week we were kind of touching base on Peter, Laurie, Boris Karloff, and Vincent Price in Roger Corman's adaptation of The Raven. And thank you for identifying that. That's right. Now I know what to look up and find. Yeah, so uh, we're going to turn right to that. So, thank you much, Jason. Take it away. Hey guys, Jason here, Nerds RPG Variety Cast. The movie you're thinking of with Vincent Price and Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff, which actually also has Jack Nicholson in it, is The Raven. It's Roger Corman's production of The Raven. Um, and Vincent Price actually narrates part of the poem in that. Um, I actually have a really soft spot for that movie. I really like it. It's it's more of a kid's movie, let's be honest. But but that's a fun movie. I I I really like it. It's streaming on one of the or it was streaming on one of the services. It was on Amazon or somewhere, you know, where you could watch for free if you have you know subscriptions those kind of things. Um, but yeah, the the Ravens what you were thinking of. So talk to you later. All right, and we're back. Thanks, Jason. Uh, not take the thunder away from the intro there, but uh, what you said. But yeah, it is a fun little movie. It is kind of cheesy, and of course, it's a Corman flick. And yeah, Jack Nicholson he is in there, and for a brief part. But you know, that's uh, early Corman for you. He was around for quite a <laughs> while, in uh, packing away at uh, with various actors that uh, got noticed and got bigger roles. Uh, Shop of Horrors. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was a Corman thing. Um, nonetheless. Uh, a movie so beloved that it spawned uh, an eventual revival. Uh, its camp sensibilities just really reached people, so gotta gotta give a nod to the cult classic. So thanks, Mr. Corman. Very welcome. Yeah, and uh, of course, with anything uh, related, it is kind of a nice fantasy thing uh, going on there. That there's some allusions, not only just to the Edgar Allan Poe poem, the infamous one. But uh, to magic and uh, a sorcerer's duel, and it, it gets really silly at certain parts. But other parts, it is kind of with Boris, Boris Karloff, of course. It does have a certain gravitas. Well, facing yeah. Boris Karloff as an evil sorcerer, come on. Yeah, but sorry, but they were awesome actors. You know, yeah. oftentimes the material they received was not that great, uh, but they brought everything they had to the role, which is the allure of some of those early movies. Sure, okay, you know, not the, the greatest productions of all time, and they're all pretty kid-friendly, because, I mean, unlike the horror movies of today, uh, you know, nobody can take the kids to see Saw 4, but hey, you know, you can watch the old movies, like Monster Channel, uh, you know, throwback mm-hmm. specials, those, you can just make a bunch of popcorn, gather around the sofa, 
and have the little ones there too. It won't hurt them a bit. Not at all. And of course, uh, who can forget Doctor Who? Because, you know, girly Doctor Who, hey, look, it's bubble wrap. That's 30% of our budget this year. Oh, dear. Yeah. That... But what they did with that I'll, bubble wrap. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll hand it to the BBC. You know, they managed to accomplish an awful lot uh, with a very small amount of stuff. Uh, <laughs> little black paint on a trash can with the plunger on the end of it. Exterminate. And an egg beater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, oh, man. Uh, you got to suspend your disbelief a little to, to sit back and enjoy some of that. But much like Doctor Who, yeah, that, that was another. Uh, the budget was low. But the heart was there. Oh, yeah. It was definitely well done. As far as uh, treating itself a little more seriously than it probably should have been. But that's a that's a thing we really ought to cover. You know, we ought to do a Whovian <laughs> uh, session sometime. Just because it is such an important facet of, you know, fantasy culture uh, and science fiction culture. It has had an outsized influence. It's punched way above its weight class. Uh, it's legendary. And... I, yep. I feel like it deserves the treatment. And I, I'm not against that. But uh, anyway, also uh, uh, returns to a topic of experience points and Stalking the Night Fantastic, Daryl 13. Jason, once again, returns to save the day with some insights from the rule book itself. So take it away again, Jason. Hey guys, Jason here, Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I dug out my old Stalking the Night Fantastic book. And some of the XP values, the highest ones are definitely for non-combat. Um, removal of supernatural threat is a thousand, but not jeopardizing civilians is a thousand. Out outfighting a superior force is five fifty. Outsmarting a superior force is a thousand. No use of violence is two thousand. Aiding the needy is a thousand. Going out of their way to aid is fifteen hundred. Outstanding aid is three thousand. And, um, like, infiltration of a hostile camp is only 500. Avoiding traps, setting traps is 400. Effective use of weapons is, as needed is 300. Dealing peacefully with others is 500. Um, so, yeah, definitely they reward you for looking for the nonviolent solutions. So, you know, and Stalking the Night Fantastic, I think, was the second horror role-playing game, really. It was like 83. It came out before Chill. You know, Call of Cthulhu was first, but it came out before Chill did. And, you know, it's really Kolchak the Night Stalker, the RPG, right? It takes a lot of cues from Kolchak where, you know, it, it rewards nonviolence. It, it encompasses all the, all the world's mythology, so you get monsters from all over. And it even has rules... Where if you're face if you're like a priest and you're facing something outside your religion, you know there are d- negatives and and modifiers there. You know, so if you're a, a Buddhist priest fighting a Christian demon, you know it's harder. Or a Christian priest going against a you know whatever something Amalasia or something. So you know some kind of. So anyway, it is just interesting, and um, it's a neat game system that I don't think it's love any more than it should. So talk to you later. All right, Jason, thanks again. Uh, yeah, the experience points table. Yeah, that really shows that uh, you were supposed to be working to save people, just not exterminate every monster in sight. And, um, cast the ashes aside and tell people, get on with your lives. It was swamp gas from Venus reflecting off the surface of <laughs> the fog. Yeah, this was decidedly not a game uh, based around concepts like the you know uh, ancient French field marshal who said, 
uh, kill them all, God will know his own. Uh, yeah, none of that in uh, Bureau 13. Much more... Uh, and Stalking the Night Stalking the Night Fantastic. Uh, you know, much more emphasis in Stalking the Night Fantastic on getting the job done without harming everybody. Uh, yeah, I, I'd like the reference to Kolchak the Night Stalker, which is oh, yeah. a personal favorite show. It is. Uh, it is pretty good. Uh, we're just talking, uh, looking at the Gangbusters uh, old game, and uh, you know, I said one of the great uh, crossovers you can do is you can get the players heavily involved in a Gangbusters campaign, and uh, it's not hard to convert some of the Call of Cthulhu monsters. Specifically, you don't have to do. You know, we don't have to convert Azathoth or Mighty <laughs> Cthulhu into uh, Gangbuster rules, <laughs> but. Putting some deep ones and some ghouls around there and adding that really uh, surprise factor of horror. Like, you know, bootleggers going out in Lake Michigan trying to, you know, pick up a shipment from Canada and they're out there doing their thing and they come across an island and there's their pickup point and, you know, there's no lights on. So they come aboard and, uh, or come offshore and, well... Let's just say that what happens next is a moment of pure horror as if they just won't die. They just won't. Die. What do you mean Tommy guns have no effect on what they do? But, you know. Oh, boy. Am I glad I wore the brown pants. Yeah. You're going to be. <laughs> and so, you know, so goes with uh, something like uh, Stalking the Night Fantastic can be woven into an investigative reporter uh, researching uh, mob murders and comes across the macabre. Uh, murder with adding some minor fantasy elements uh, helps make the game, it shakes it up and makes the players start looking over their shoulder at maybe the gangsters aren't the worst enemy we're facing. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there is definitely uh, that. And also, uh, good picking up on that fact that uh, Stalking Design Fantastic was a little bit before Chill, but uh, also worked uh, quite well. Aside with other horror role-playing games, the big one in the room, which is Call of Cthulhu, which, you know, as we mentioned, yes, existentialistic horror can, has its appeal, but you can only hold that so often. But uh, I'd also say that uh, if you use the Pulp Cthulhu rules, that uh, really helps take a little bit of the wind out of the sails of that oppressive, you know, doom is upon us, there's nothing you can do, you're all insignificant, everything <laughs> is meaningless, just hope for a quick death and hope that the horrors of the universe pass you by quietly. We are all ants in a meaningless cosmos, by Ragstone Fillet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. Sorry, deep cut there, folks. Yeah, that's that, a deep one, yeah. That, uh, from the uh, 12-book comic series Moonshadow, uh, featuring, uh, I believe, John J. Muth. Uh, doing the watercolors. Oh yeah, that was. Oh, it, yeah, it's it's. <laughs> you got to roll the clock back for that one, but I, I'm pretty sure the graphic novel is still out there to be found in a few places. Yeah, we also I also stumbled across some stuff about uh, Men in Black comic from Aerosol in Malibu. Yeah, uh, there was a talking about, and I actually broke out uh, my digital copies of them and uh, reread through them. It was good stuff, but uh, yeah, also very good for Bureau Thirteen, of course. Great Kay, the uh, not a nice guy in that one. Tommy Lee Jones, he was not. <laughs> yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is a far nicer guy, much more approachable character than, uh, for instance, the, the Agent K. Yeah. Of, yeah, Agent K had no qualms whatsoever. He like, memory wiping. <laughs> well, why worry about that when you can just kill them? <laughs> 
Our orders are leave no witnesses. You know, <laughs> and that's what it means. No witnesses. Yeah, I mean, he's not getting. Uh, yeah, very different comic book. I, I like the changes they made. It made it a fun and approachable yeah. series of movies. So, uh, not upset. I, I feel like they they came away from that the better for it. Yeah, but uh, again, thanks, Jason, for uh, leading. As we get off the weeds, we will get back on the path here. Uh, thanks for the experience points on that. That really showed let me, that you let me know. Refasten the kimono. Yeah, that really shows that uh, you know they were thinking well ahead on how players were supposed to behave. And also that whole part about uh, the different faiths versus enemies of the faith from other faiths. That whole cross-section chart. Yeah, that was a mind-blower. Like, yes, a Hindu uh, priest is trying to exercise a Native American demon, a Wendigo, from uh, haunting a place in a camp. That's a little bit different. Yeah, uh, that, a little it, harder task, but you know, it did kind of give credence that there's more things out there than you know. So, I like that. But anyway, we're gonna turn to uh, pay the bills a little bit, uh, do our advertisement, and get back into it with some topics. So stick around. And welcome back. And so we're here with you, and you are with us. So hopefully, you'll sit back and enjoy as we regale you with tales from the days of old and also the days of new. So what we're going to be talking about for Topic Tuesday is, of course, monsters. Monsters, monsters, and more monsters. Okay. It's a great topic. Uh, right off the bat, uh, monsters are fairly central to the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as a DM, uh, you create opposition, uh, obstruction, complication. You're the one who places things in front of the players. Uh, and so the monster especially the legendary monster, uh, was really the first installment in D&D. The, you know, it was one thing to have an army of, like, Sauron's orcs uh, opposing you. Uh, but it was another thing to recreate St. George and the dragon. Uh, these were the early ingredients in D&D sessions. Well, like, hey, you know, if we can oppose an uh, army, and the army is no longer the Burgundians... Uh, but instead Sauron's orcs and associated goblins, uh, then why couldn't we go take out Smaug? Uh, and the next thing you know, <laughs> uh, you know, chainmail is developing and changing into the earliest forms of D&D. So the monster remains that central element, that, that most primal ingredient. So what better for a topic? Well, yeah, and uh, specifically... Monsters are the DM's main arsenal. They are what you, from the lowly orc or kobold and goblin, what you throw at the players early on, to the end game, uh, weird stuff like ropers, beholders, and, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, let's throw out a couple uh, high-level monsters that kind of obscure from the just the core version of the game. And, uh, well, we would go, we would do a disservice if we didn't talk about certain things like, well, they put dinosaurs in there, but um, some common monsters like trolls and ogres and giants, which are your normative, if you want to pull into that. But D&D was also set up with weird things right out of the box. And, of course, you know, you have the aforementioned Beholder. But what are some other ones that come off the top of the head? Oh, well, yeah, like out of Monster Manual 1, mm-hmm. uh, the Ixxacatl. Uh, well, all right, well, yeah, but, of course, a double ray that... yeah. You know, Demonic manta ray, or devil ray. Yeah. Uh, that <laughs> a race of evil manta, or evil rays, 
that uh, inhabit coastal waters and inevitably plot mayhem on behalf of their evil god. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Or, uh, or rust monsters. Yeah. There's a DM screw you moment. Uh, yeah, this thing doesn't kill you. It just rots your precious metal armor. Odiugs, you know, and then how does... How do we keep the dungeons overflowing with fecal matter? Well, there's these creatures that eat that stuff. And gelatinous cubes that prowl the hallways, keeping them nice and clean. Yeah, oozes, slimes, uh, gelatinous cubes, you know, these acidic creatures that burn away all excess refuse and life forms, uh, leaving behind bare rock in their wake. Uh, or, you know, bone, metal, bits of gugaws and knickknacks. Yep. Hey, the gem was unharmed, but uh, whoever was holding it was not lucky. No. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of approve of oozes. And anything that destroys treasure, I do not like. Uh, anything that just attacks player characters but does not destroy the treasure, um, I like. But you also had a lot of classics. Uh, what I was trying to get to is like some of the things like the Lich. Oh. Now, the Lich is kind of a... Well, it's a proto-creature. Uh, I mean, it's an animated undead sorcerer, and that is just as metal as AF. Well, and it gives the undead a little bit of clout for once. Unlike most undead, uh, with the exception, of course, of vampires, who are right, especially and... cunning. Uh, these higher forms of undead are very intelligent, uh, and incredibly competent and still capable of a wide variety of spell use. So uh, the players who, have, who may have been used to punching out relatively mindless, hungry undead, haunting the, the deep places, all of a sudden they're toe-to-toe -to -toe with something that can totally plan ahead, uh, execute terrific spell combos, and show your creativity as a DM. Uh, so yeah, the Lich is a good one. That's a classic. Yep, but it really isn't featured as heavily in folklore as one may believe. You no. Know? Um, there's a few allusions to it. But I would say that, while not created from whole cloth, and it was kind of floating around in the background of the subconscious of many fantasy writers, you know, an animated corpse of a sorcerer of antiquity who just refuses to die and has found ways to circumvent death by becoming undead, is, of course, classic. But it's... As well, metal as AF, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, you got that going for you. But Well, the Pegasus. Yeah, you, know. you got things like the Hydra and a lot of others. But, you a know. A lot of stuff from classic Greek mythology uh, found its way in. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot from North African mythology found its way in as mm -hmm. well. Uh, and, you know, a surprising amount from uh, Asian and Native American folklore. Uh, all incorporated into one vast pool of monsters that was your kind of starter set. It allowed a novitiate DM to have a pretty wide range of stuff at their disposal, uh, depending on what kind of theme you were going with. I mean, are the characters outdoors? Well, heck, we got everything right up to a giant skunk. Uh, which, boy, there's some bad news for the players. Yeah, but our... Uh... <laughs> Our totemic pet, the Etten and uh, Umber Hulk, also come <laughs> yes. from there. And I also uh, wanted to make mention about that with these monsters came in the index. Early on, they just kind of 
put out monsters. They just, you know, here's the white box and here's some monsters. And of course, through the pages of the strategic review and the dragon, more monsters were added. And some of them, like the boule and others, were kind of weird. But they, you know, it's all right. Yeah, there's room for were, weird monsters. Because people were stretching their creativity to create challenges for players that had gotten pretty canny and pretty tough. I mean, you, you really had to throw uh, the kitchen sink at a well-practiced uh, party of gamers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you yeah, once Ford did like it, orcs just ain't gonna cut it this weekend, boys. Yep, and to keep it new and interesting, new monsters were of course put in there uh, into the game. It was meant to be uh, expandable. Because you were supposed to surprise players. But, with the advent of the Monster Manual, which was one of the first hardback books made, it had the frequency. So you had common, like an orc or goblin would be common, uncommon, rare, and very rare. So that kind of put an ecology into things with, obviously, dragons and some of the more uh, ravenous beasties like beholders and crazy stuff like uh, ropers at the top. Of the food chain. Oh, yeah. Like, let's be honest. Uh, it helped curb the worst impulses because, you know, what good is a campaign world if there's rampaging boulet on every corner? Uh, you know, the uh, giant land shark uh, with its nigh impenetrable armor. Uh, you know, could you really build a civilization with those running around every weekend? Right. I don't think so. You'd all be running for your lives or hunkered and tiny little caves with tiny entrances you had to crawl through. Uh, yeah, you really wouldn't want that getting at you. Um, but most uh, modules... It, it that, curbed the worst of yeah. the offenses. It, it set a nice benchmark so that you could determine uh, what's the likelihood of this? Should I have like a layer of 20 of them this close to a city? Or should there really just be one loner out in the forest? Uh, the little ecology notes that they included from time to time about the habits of creatures, purely fictional, um, was incredibly useful. But the one I was reaching for, and finally grasped, was the Illithid, or Mind Flare. was another really weird one that uh, definitely was right out of the pages of weird tales, almost Cthuloid. You can almost see H.P. Uh, Lovecraft writing about these things, or Clark Ashton Smith, probably, or August Derelith, uh, would have been able to uh, been right at home writing about these guys. And, uh, of course, they were very rare, exceedingly rare, so much so that uh, very few people had lived, who had encountered them had ever lived to tell the tale. And so you kind of got to grasp that there was a certain frequency to things, but... As the game evolved, more monsters were added, modules began to add more and more, all the way up to uh, Lost Caverns of Sojikant, where they uh, included a new, almost a mini bestiary inside Monster Manual, then Monster Manual 2 expanded it even farther, Field and Fiend Folio. Yeah, reprising all of the material included in uh, Lost Caverns of Sojikant. The Monster Manual 2 uh, really did a terrific job expanding the franchise, so to speak. Oh, it was it was actually a little bit of a tour de force of monster inclusion. Oh, it, yeah. With the Fiend Folio, you had uh, really very creative and sometimes really crazy and bizarre monsters. But you, Nilbog. You know, reverse Goblin, yeah. He absorbs damage. He mm. can be slain by a heal spell. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even have that very many hit points, but uh, if you wail on him enough, he's going to get really strong. Really fast, <laughs> yeah. I do. 
32 points of damage. The creature looks not only unfazed, but downright chipper. <laughs> he encourages more meeting. Um, wow. Marquis de Sade would love this guy. Um, nonetheless, with that, you know, the game began to get crowded. And, you know, uh, with 2nd Edition, uh, they kind of started to do less with the frequency. And just kind of let DMs do whatever they wanted. If you want to include a monster like this, well, fine. You know, this is the standard uh, setting for the frequency encounters. But, you know, if you do you. Orcs are rare in your campaign and uh, hobgoblins are common. Well, then go for it. Uh, that's completely within your purview. And each game master had carte blanche to decide what was and what wasn't in his campaign. Or their campaign, to be uh more fair about it. And also put a little bit of a spin on it. It added to the point that not every monster had to be included in a campaign. But uh, again, you know, there was kind of a feeling, and I still agree with that, that there can never be too many monsters because you can always pull something out that surprises your players, and that's what you're aiming for. When you want something that they don't know what it is, or what is that, and what are its abilities. Nothing makes players guess at the appearance of a strange and new monster, even if it's been around for a while and just kind of lurked in the back pages of some monster manual for a while. Oh, yeah, I terrorized an entire table of players with one squealer from Monster Manual 2 because not one of them had ever encountered such a thing during a game before. They were up in the treetops, and here's this thing that it's fast-moving, multiple attacks, uh, you know, just ferocious, uh, and could disappear into the underbrush very, very quickly. So, yeah, it created a lot of consternation since they were also uh, up in, like, a tree ruin. You know, like a... How do I put it? Uh, a former tree city. Okay. So they were up above the forest floor, and if any of them fell, I mean, the damage would have been instantaneously fatal. So... Yeah, moment of panic as the rampaging creature comes crashing through there and slams people around. Uh, one bad roll that it could have gone an entirely different way. But no, it, to this end, as we mentioned, the value of a new and creative monster, I, I think that opens the door for the next segment here, which is monster building. Because... You know, it's great that there is so much material out there for a DM to call on. That's terrific. But editions being what they are, sometimes you find yourself with the same material for a few years. Uh, you may not have a big, splendid collection of monsters to work with as a new edition arrives. This is where a little DM homework gets called for. And, that, you know, it's part of a DM's job. Yeah, to create new monsters and keep your players surprised and on their toes. Also, guessing about what kind of creature they're going to face, what its abilities, what its weaknesses are, and how to basically kill it. Yeah. Uh, As Clyde and Clem often... Stab it till it dies. dies. Yep. Oh, you know, you save running for later. But uh, there's a lot of components that go into this. Uh, exercising judgment as a DM, when you develop a monster you really have to put some time in uh, on its relative strength, uh, capacity for harm, you know, and its potential weaknesses. 
uh, if you're just going to create an juggernaut of some kind that can tear the players apart uh, with no hope of redemption, uh, that's a little callow. That is not... Uh, anyone can do that. You know, just, yeah, it's armor classes. You know, Rocks fall. You know, AC, ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a living mountain, and it's pissed. Yeah, that the building attacks you, uh, and it has an infinite number of hit points, plus regeneration that never quits. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, damage reduction, 100, and, you know, 50 points of regeneration per round. No, walking it back a little, the gist of it is to measure where your players are at, try to at least look at existing material, and consider very carefully what weight class is this similar to? Is there anything with any semblance, like, uh, you know, winged attacking monsters? Uh, Look at the weakest ones, look at the strongest ones, and cross-reference. Once you've got a picture of where the official material went, it's not that hard to stitch together an average somewhere in between. Like, I I want an aerial monster that is appropriate for this level, and I want it to have some unique qualities, like a poison bite. Uh, And sooner or later, you get down to the point where if your players are not strong enough to defeat this thing in any way, what you've got to start walking back is, yeah, all right, it's great the way it is, but let's be a little more reasonable in terms of its armor or its movement speed, or is there a particular thing that is fatal to it that if the players happen to have it, like it won't come anywhere near fire and they've got a burning torch handy, maybe it is really hard to kill, but they can drive it back. There are nuances to this that get very, very tough, and that's totally understandable. Yeah, and we can spend an entire session talking about the, yeah. the, the how to build monsters and how to weigh them. I mean, 3rd edition had uh, one of the dragon magazines, a, uh, how to design creatures and how to kind of figure it out they, uh, by the numbers. One of the best facets of 3rd edition was its incredible uh, building tools. Yeah. yeah, but it wasn't as successful, and it did lead to some glaring <laughs> oversights. But uh, oh yes, uh, some of those did happen because it's all supposed to be within the DM's purview to limit or uh, exceed certain challenge rating factors, and you just can't, you know, do it by the numbers. It's there's a lot that goes into it, but yeah, more important, like, it was like gamer build a bear. Yeah, it's just awesome. Yeah, you could stitch this on, and you ended up with some really crazy monsters. Uh, that rivaled almost anything out of the Fiend Polio. And I'd like to say for every Sons of Cuss or uh, Death Knight that came out of the Fiend Polio, there were the Algoid and the Sheet Phantom, oh. who were also kind of like, what were they thinking? But Flump. Yeah, the Flump. <laughs> the humble Flump, there to greet you. Um, but nonetheless, uh, when you began incorporating all these monsters, you ended up with this savage, crazy quilt ecology of things that just boggles the mind how anybody gets anything done with all of these creatures running amok. <laughs> and that's kind of where we're wanting to go with this next part here is that, you know, you ended up with uh, basically three monster compendiums in uh, first edition. Second edition had, oh geez, like 12, 15, and just tons of them. 
And uh, again, they were easy to insert. The idea was is that you would create a binder that came with a big binder, and you would just yeah, include or pull it out, uh, put in new ones or take out old ones or whatever, and you know you could create your own kind of campaign. Yeah, there was the main folio. set, and then the expansions, and the expansions all came with the uh, hole punch, uh, you know, for the three ring binder, so that you could add it to your existing binder, uh, which I still have. Yeah. Uh, I still have most of my second edition stuff. Um, but with third edition, they ended up going all the way up to five monster manuals and then a one fiend folio. So, you know, wow, they went up to six and Pathfinder followed suit with six bestiaries as well. Plus, you know, every adventure path. And these had... were not slender little bestiaries. Okay. Nope. These were, these were not little penny ante, you know, uh, you know, dollar store inserts. These were tomes full of critters. Yep, and of course, you don't have to use them all. It's kind of out there that they all exist at certain places and times. Um, but, you know, they got it, again, they've never really gotten much with the frequency, and I think that is one thing that if you had to look whole cloth and, wow, there's just a ton of monsters out there. How do How does any other race survive unless it's just a savage, clawed monstrosity with fast healing, able to keep up with everything else. Well, whose savagery may be the very secret of his survival. Yeah, everybody's playing barbarians. Korgoth the Barbaria. Yep. <laughs> with, you know, still dragons at the top. And that's a bit tough call with uh, some of the escalation of monsters. And, of course, you still have your outsiders, your demons and devils, and all it's the spooky things from beyond. Worth, worth a nod. One DM to another. You know, my recommendation, when you have a high fantasy campaign that is going to have a lot of these creatures in it, uh, aside from reinstituting their comparative rarity, mm -hmm. it's also possible... For the DM to stitch in a plot development, uh, like an ancient pact, a piece that was made at some point, where certain creatures are bound to remain in certain places. Uh, you know, uh, sort of a, a deal. Uh, yeah, there are certain monsters that are obviously going to be confined to locales, ones that dwell primarily in lava, fire. Yeah. They stay in the hot places of the world. Vibes Those who are in uh, aquatic monsters obviously going to be regulated to the oceans and uh, large bodies of water. And there's obviously arboreal horrors and whatnot lurking about. But, you know, it's... i, I got to ask. I, I really have to ask you this. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, my memory is failing me here, which I know, surprise. Surprise, It doesn't, yeah. doesn't happen a lot, but it... it hey, I struggled with the illicit. Sorry. I had it coming over. I... I'm trying to remember the movie, uh, they were night and day something, uh, and it was a Russian production uh, where a guy gets pulled into the world of, you know, the supernatural, and they have a pact where... Oh, the Nightbreed? Not Nightbreed, that I think was Clive Barker. Yeah. But, uh, and the Russian one, like, uh, oh, okay. Night... Patrol or Night Watch or something like that. The Night Watch and yep. the Day Watch. The Night Watch and the Day Watch. Okay, yep. At two opposite sides, good, evil, what have you. You know, not necessarily that simple, but uh, you know, there's supposed to be a pact that keeps this truce in place and it's eroding. You mm -hmm. know, somebody's about to make a power play. You can incorporate notions like that into your campaign, retain the high fantasy presence of extreme monsters, and curb their 
availability at the same time. You know, there can be lots of them, but they are just somewhere else. And we'll be tidy if you go there. Yeah, and that's that's a good way of keeping it. Also, gods. Um, there can be gods and monsters as well that also perpetuate their own kind and are opposed by the deities of law and order or justice or good or whatever you want to call it. Monster butt kicking. <laughs> we need a, we need a deity. by the uh, forces of warm and fuzzy. Yep. <laughs> uh, versus the, the hated uh, peoples of cold and prickly. Yep. <laughs> Angry and not so nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, there's a lot of ways you can limit it. And of course, one of the ways uh, that's the easiest is just basically make decisions when certain things are going to appear. And, you know, just it's, it's magic and it's fantasy world, so don't overthink it. You can work well within the confines of a campaign and always have room for expansion. Kind of the un- written rule is that these things all exist at once, but they're not as prevalent, perhaps, as one would think, and are encountered in strange places like the Underdark, or in forlorn places at the edge of reality, or in areas which are more normally unacceptable, unex- unaccessible by uh, mere mortals, and where adventurers, when they go in looking for treasure and things like that, then encounter them. And if you're a particularly vicious DM... Curb certain spells and abilities that uh, reveal identity, you know, wipe out illusion, things like that. Uh, <clears throat> and intersperse the evil creatures amongst humanity, having learned to blend in uh, and prey upon them uh, at discreet moments, even on their own city streets. And, you know, more to the point, uh, looking at, uh, it's popular nowadays, but The Witcher has a good uh, way of dealing with monsters, is that here's a guy who, you know, was created to fight these horrors, and uh, he knows a great deal about them. And, uh, you know, even he is surprised sometimes about the frequency in encountering, like, the gold dragon. There's no such thing. Without such mutations, would it be preposterous. Nothing could ever create a gold dragon. And then he encounters one, and he's like, well, uh, okay, so I guess I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Yeah, uh, and here I am without a coin to toss to my witcher. Yeah, I know. Oh, man. And and here I am living in the Valley of Plenty. I have no excuse. Yep, so, you know, one of the big things about fantasy is besides just magic is the fantastical element of monsters and almost anything can happen. And I think that's a unique thing to fantasy gaming. And I don't think it's unrealistic if you handle it right. The witcher definitely shows how you can definitely throw all these things in into a campaign, yet still have a very strong human or uh, humanoid presence of civilizations and governments and plots that revolve around the various civilizations they're in without having to always worry about, well, what do the mind players think about all this? <laughs> oh, yeah. Should we check in with them first? No. Oh. Never check no. in with them. No. No one cares what they think, and they do think a lot. They're of one mind about this, and that mind says dinner. Yep, you're on the plate. Oh, the wine players are having us over for dinner. Well, how nice of them. <laughs> what a lovely couple they are. Oh. Yeah, the illicits, yeah. But anyway, um, we would uh, be remiss being, if we didn't <laughs> talk about also some of the top tier things that probably every D&D campaign should have. Now, whether you like orcs or you don't like orcs or whatever, you should always have kind of a enemy race and... 
whether it can just be angry humans who, you know, uh, wear black armor and growl a lot underneath their helmets. <laughs> you know, think about how the poor uh, English felt about the Viking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, worthwhile. Uh, you know, you know, savage raiders. Uh, you know, which... they would seem almost inhuman and almost inscrutable in their methods. And uh, yeah, you... they attacked a church. Do they not respect the power of God? Well, apparently not. Uh, they certainly like God's golden ornaments. <laughs> uh, they uh, another example would be having something similar to the Reavers in Firefly. Yep. Where, you know, unlike Vikings who, hey, honestly, could be parleyed with. You know, it's well, not yeah, easy but to do it. most people are so terrified of the image that they cultivated yeah, for, on purpose. It's better to get the heck out of the way, you know. Uh, but you can have, uh, you know, a tribe so savage, uh, 13th warrior yeah. style, where they just come and it's fire and burning and death. Uh, and absolute opposition to them is, you know, pretty much mandatory. Yeah, but the fantastical and the supernatural element is also served with other races than humans existing and. Whether or not you decide to have a human-centric campaign or just one with everybody everywhere, you can always include that there's going to be a civilization, and from that civilization you can start to extrapolate and work out from there. And while we're kind of touching on the meta here, the point is is that by using a strong framework of what you want your campaign to represent, what themes you want to have, the amount of monsters that are available to you are there for your use and your use only. Um, if you decide that you're going to keep it down to just a select few, good on you, because that makes it very focused. And also, uh, you have to then work with the rules, maybe to make each encounter different from the next. Kind of like how RuneQuest views uh, the brew. And I'll kind of I'll go back to how RuneQuest uh, deals with its monsters. They have a, quite a variety of monsters, but all of them have kind of a place in the world. They're just not simple, other than a few like the Gorp and Octopus and couple other crazy monsters that are beasts <laughs> of chaos who are aberrations. Some of the other races have... I want to name a band, Walktopus. Yep, me too. And uh, I also want to name one Brew because the Brew are often cunning. And the way that the rules proceed to know to encounter a Brew is going to be the same. And uh, other than that, it's probably going to involve combat and a disease check at certain points in time. Because <laughs> they are filthy, terrible creatures. And so... Whatever you do, if you follow the rune quest, which is kind of like a little bit more strict in its incorporation of new monsters, although they incorporate new and create new monsters all the time, they're not immune, but they do kind of keep their arms around it. Whereas you go kind of willy-nilly with the uh, fifth edition and Pathfinder, where it's just everything goes all the time. It's just monsters, monsters, monsters everywhere. Just kill them all. You know what? As long as you're having a good time and you're doing the heroic fight and uh, making sure that your players are having fun, you're well served by having a large arsenal of monsters. Yeah, no question there. Uh, it, it cannot hurt your cause to have that much variety at your fingertips, and certainly D&D &D and Pathfinder alike. Oh, yeah. uh, well, done that well. If you mention D&D, &D, you can just in the same breath just say Pathfinder, because well, while they're derivative and they have marketed differences, like for instance, that you won't find many elicited inside Pathfinder because, well, that's copywritten. You will find owlbears and you will find some monsters that are quite similar to each other if you look under the names. Yeah, another another DM screw you monster, the owlbear. And yep, 
Well, yeah. we can't forget the Beholder. Oh, craziest wow. monster, most gonzo monster I think out of that realm yeah. until Dungeon Crawl Classics got a hold of it. Whew. Oh, that is uh, time for another uh, topic. <laughs> so I'll uh, leave it at that. Yeah, we should we should have an episode of just the super weird, uh, highlighting the weirdest monsters of all time top ten list, like David Letterman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just because D and D has got them. <laughs> just coming it down to ten. Uh, is tough enough. Oh, well, yeah. I'd probably be in the fiend folio for the most part. But all right. Uh, well, yeah. we've abused your eardrums and your intellect far too long. And we thank you if you sat through all this and uh, listened. We hope you enjoyed it, at least. And if you have any questions, which you probably should have many, many questions about us. Deep-seated questions. Comments or things we missed, we got wrong, or just plain messed up. Hey, let us know. Uh, either send us... Uh, Leave a comment on our Facebook page about the episode, and we'll also talk about that. Uh, you can see our Facebook page at The Dice Are Screaming on Facebook, as well as get a hold of us on Twitter directly at the, well, at my haunt at the Death Hand Gaming. You can at me there. And myself at Magi Vox. Yeah, leave us a comment, and also you can download the Anchor app and uh, leave us a voice message, and we'll feature you on the show. Won't make you famous, though. <laughs> Nobody gets famous here. Infamous. No, maybe you, yeah. you could acquire a small amount of notoriety. Oh yeah, <laughs> here at the Brazen Strumpet of Game oh, Podcast. Here we go again. Yeah, I'm right. back on that one. It, it never <laughs> left my mind. <laughs> the Brazen Strumpet. What won't we do for a gold piece? <laughs> That's what you have to ask yourself. All right. Well, we'll close it at that. And may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. Mm-hmm.